What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Syrian Tales, Episode 1 Roots I often think about the boundaries which separate humans from one another. Borders are not geographical, they are mental. They're social, philosophical, and sometimes even emotional. We all have borders in our minds and our hearts. They are formed by our experience, by what we see with our own eyes, and what is reported to us in speech or video. From those things we have emotional responses, and those responses, to other people, to situations, to concepts, are what give us the borders we take for granted. In ancient Syria, borders were loose. Beyond a city's physical walls, the borders of a territory were more about who was willing to obey you than by what lands you could call mine. The result of this is that we pick our enemies and our friends depending on the situations in which we find ourselves. The ones we trade with, communicate with, and talk to on a day-to-day basis, we might consider them friends. But when situations change, when circumstances are upheaved, or outsiders interfere in the situation, those friends might very quickly become our enemies. The Syrian tales that I am giving you in this series are my attempt to explore that concept within the ancient world. It is my hope that through these stories, we will gain some greater insight into some of the complexities of human societies and behaviour, which ultimately underlie the conflict which these episodes are dedicated to. Our story begins in the best of times, a time when people of the Syrian city that I'm going to focus on were living a charmed life, They were prosperous, they were settled, and they were comfortable. But, as with all things, the great pleasures of their life inevitably had to come to an end. From great heights, these people also had to experience great lows. The thing is, their story is not unique to the time in which they lived. Their story could easily be transplanted to the modern day, and play out with very similar situations. So... This is a tale of ancient Syria, and of modern Syria. Our story begins long, long ago, around 2400 BCE. We are in central Syria, about 40 miles southwest of modern Aleppo. To the west, the Mediterranean Sea. To the east, the Euphrates River. Here, in the centre, It is a land of deserts, oases, sporadic grasslands, and a few towns. It is a land ruled by the city called Ebla, a city that saw the best that Syria had to offer, and eventually the worst. Ebla was one of the first great cities of central Syria. 
It was about halfway between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates, and it grew up in a strategic location right on the central trade routes that pass through this part of the world. Because of this, the city grew rich and very quickly became the equivalent of a metropolis. Some estimates put the population of Embla's kingdom, which includes the city, the villages, the farming communities, etc., at nearly 250,000 people. For the area, and for the time, that is absolutely massive. Ebla, essentially, was one of the first great kingdoms in the Near East. Its people, and its rulers, were living a very charmed life. The city of Ebla sat on top of a rocky hilltop, which we call a tell. The houses, temples, workshops, and cemeteries were clustered around this tell, rising up the slopes. At the top, there was the central governing organization, the Royal Palace. The Palace of Ebla was a huge complex dominating the hilltop of the city. Its walls were plastered white, and it was a very compact area. Storerooms clustered around throne rooms, apartments filled out extra buildings, and narrow alleyways and stairways wound their way between the different sections. Looking at modern reconstructions, I am strongly reminded of the palaces at Knossos, or the small towns in the Greek islands today. Certainly, it was a cramped, but lively, place to live and work. From the flat roofs of the palace, one could look out on Ebla, and on the surrounding landscape, seeing for miles in every direction. The palace was a commanding place. From these heights, the whole world might have seemed subject to the whims of Ebla's ruling class. These were the very best of times. That being said, how did the ancient Eblaites live? What was life like for this fabulously wealthy little community? At the height of Ebla's history, the government was led and directed by one man. Not the king, but the vizier. The vizier, or Lugal Sazar, head of the administration, acted like the CEO of Ebla's royal household. He directed trade projects, military activities, and all manner of agricultural affairs. His job was complex and extensive. Fortunately, we know a lot about it. At the time our story takes place, the vizier of Ebla is a man named Ibi Zakir. Ibi Zakir has wide-ranging authorities and is involved in many different aspects of Eblaite life. But above all, it was his job to organize the trade of the city, and most importantly, its sustenance. The Eblaites came from ancient pastoral roots. This meant that their economy was based largely on the herds. Sheep, goats, and cattle were the mainstay of their agricultural produce. The city of Ebla is not in a particularly fertile area of this part of the world. It's more grassland than farmland. So, the Eblaites had to adapt, and they used wandering herds to support themselves most of the time. By the time of Ibi Zakir, the Eblaites had diversified and increased the various activities which they were engaged in. But their roots always went back to that pastoral tradition. This is encapsulated, I think, by the fact that the royal treasury, the most valuable part of the palace, was named the House of Wool. Basically, 
no matter how sophisticated the Eblite society got, they never lost that ancient connection to the land, to their animals, and to the production which came from those things. Ibi Zakir managed things like the royal treasury, but the name for the royal treasury was the House of Weaving, or the House of Wool. That should give you a sense of what the Eblites were all about. Even at the peak of their society, the parts of their government which were most concerned with management and administration, they were still rooted in this mentality of raising animals, caring for animals, and using the products of animals to make a better lifestyle. For people in this age, managing food was obviously the highest priority of their daily life. Compared to the rest of Syria, the people of Ebla had an uncommon diet. In many respects, their diet was almost Mediterranean. First of all, they hardly used grain at all compared to the river cultures. Instead, food production was focused on the herds. Livestock of all kinds were used for food and for production. Because they had less access to water, the Eblaites also tended to grow olives and grapes more than cereals. Vines are hardier once they get going, so the Eblaites had a diet rich in olives, in olive oil, and in wine. I don't know about you, but sign me up for that right now. So no matter how sophisticated Ebla became as an urban environment, its basic assumptions, the experiences which shaped the society's mental borders, were all rooted in that ancient pastoral way of life. Naturally, they viewed the world around them in terms of their access to food sources, and to the products which could be produced by things like olives, sheep, and grapes. Which brings me to the big question about Ebla. Eblaite society was pastoral like many communities, but Ebla itself was incredibly rich. What made the Eblaites so rich? Well, as with all the great cities of ancient Syria, what made the people of Ebla so rich was a combination of industriousness and trade. The people of Ebla practiced an early form of what we might call trade investment. Trade convoys were supported by a group of wealthy individuals who provided goods for trade and funding. The convoy then headed off to its destinations, where it was expected to trade its goods for a profit. This profit would either be in the form of specific goods that they wanted, or in some kind of currency, which usually took the form of raw metal or linen. When the convoy had sold all of its goods and gathered something in return, it headed back to Ebla. When it got home, the goods were distributed among the investors who had put up the initial outlay. These investors then reinvested their profits into new convoys, and the whole cycle just went on and on. Ancient proto-capitalism? Almost. The word capitalism has too many modern aspects to be useful in ancient history, but certainly the Eblaites were very skilled in the art of trading, or of turning what they had into what they needed. Of all possible trade goods, the Eblaites valued two things above all. They valued metal and linen. Metals like silver, or kubaba, and linen, called tugs, were incredibly valued by the ancient Eblaites. These items were the currency of ancient Syria. They were used like this because they were durable, but easily transported. 
they could be used for a variety of different things, so they were also flexible. Ebla did not have easy access to metal or to linen. Metal requires mines, which Ebla does not have, and linen requires flax, which didn't grow in that region. So the Eblaites focused on gathering all the metal and linen that they could. Their craft workers, both men and women, then turned these raw materials into finished goods. Goods like jewellery, ornaments, decorations, clothing, accessories, and all the luxury goods of an ancient Bronze Age society. Ultimately, this kind of savvy trading and production made the Eblaites incredibly rich. They used gold and precious stones, like lapis lazuli from faraway Afghanistan, to make artworks, and their people were probably dressed very well for the time. One historian describes it like this, quote, It is not difficult to imagine the grandeur of an Eblite ruler, or the charm of a Syrian woman clothed in tunic, cloak, and veils, and wearing the most sophisticated and costly jewels like lapis lazuli, gold, carnelian, or amethyst. Ebla must truly have overflowed with riches. Not just in the treasury storehouses, the coffers in many homes must also have been full of jewels. End quote. Historians and archaeologists really can't get enough of Ebla. The site is just overflowing with fascinating material. The Eblaites were rich, they were well-connected, and they were prosperous. Life in their city was wonderful by the standards of the day. So, how did it all go so wrong? Before the modern war in Syria began in 2011 AD, many of its cities boasted wonderful architecture and public spaces. Large open plazas were adorned with fountains, with grass, and with trees. Marketplaces, or bazaars, were filled with dozens or hundreds of shops selling different wares to tourists and to locals. Mosques were marble and polished stone, decorated in rich patterns and colours. Antique houses featured ornate facades, and public heritage sites, like some of the ancient ruins, were surrounded by gardens and trees. Now, these areas are rubble, shattered by bombs, burned by fire, and riddled by bullets. They are sad ruins of once beautiful cities. Believe it or not, the description I just gave you could be transplanted with very few tweaks to the ancient city of Ebla. Around 2250 BCE, give or take, the archaeological remains of ancient Ebla reveal a layer of total and utter destruction. The old palace on top of the hill was burned to the ground, the city around it was sacked and obliterated, and the living spaces of thousands of people were turned to ash. It seems that an invader attacked Ebla, and in the course of a truly horrific sack, reduced the central city to devastated ruins. Once beautiful palaces became tumbles of ash, Once lively centres of commerce and trade became broken piles of debris. The destruction was so thorough that when people inevitably started to rebuild, they had to abandon the old palace entirely and start a brand new one. We do not know how many died in this attack, but we do know what caused it. Now, Ebla was obviously not as grand or large or magnificent as some modern cities get, but for the day... It was a truly splendid area. Sadly, such a community could not thrive so beautifully without attracting attention. Ebla's wealth attracted outside greed, 
and the city inevitably became embroiled in conflicts. Some of these conflicts turned out quite well. During his period of service in Ebla, the vizier Ibi Zakir led an army against one of the city's major rivals, the city of Mari. Ibi Zakir and the Eblaite warriors were victorious against Mari, and he recorded it as a great victory for his people. But not all conflicts have a happy ending for their participants, and inevitably, the city of Ebla suffered a fate similar to many of the cities of Syria today. Four hundred years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Listen to season one to hear about England's first attempts at empire building in Ireland, in North America, and in the Caribbean, the first steps of the East India Company, and the political battles between king and parliament. Listen to season two to hear about the chaotic years of civil war, revolution, and regicide, which rocked the three kingdoms and the fledgling empire. In season three, we see how Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell ruled the powerful Commonwealth and challenged the Dutch and the Spanish for the wealth and power of the Americas and Asia. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link pax. Decades before the total destruction of their city, Ebla began to hear word of wars and ruin far away. The first hint of this that we see in the record was a letter from the city of Mari, a city far away on the river Euphrates. At Mari, a local warlord had overthrown their king and taken command of the entire region. Quote, Thus says Enna Dagan, the new king of Mari, to the king of Ebla. Behold, I raised piles of corpses in the mountainous country of Lebanon. The cities of Tibalat and Ilwi I besieged. I raised piles of corpses in the mountains of Angai. Behold, Iblul Il, the king of Mari, I defeated. I raised piles of corpses there. The king of Mari fled to Nerat and into the fortress of Hashuan. There I received their tribute. The scepters indicating the legitimate sovereignty of many countries I gathered up. I raised piles of corpses there as well. End quote. Now, disturbances in faraway kingdoms were nothing new in the ancient world. But these wars in particular heralded trouble for Ebla. Mari on the Euphrates River was one of Ebla's trade partners, and occasionally its rival. Mari was close enough to Ebla that the two could fight each other directly if they wanted to. If a foreign warlord had conquered Mari, would Ebla be next? Well, in a word, yes. Although not from the source that we might expect. We don't know what happened to this foreign warlord, Enna Dagan, but we do know that soon after his little escapade, the lands of Mesopotamia were overrun by a whole new threat. This threat was the kingdom of Akkad, and it was forming one of the world's first empires. The Akkadians are, well, they're an astoundingly influential people. In the history of Mesopotamia, 
the Akkadians rank up there with Babylon and Sumeria for political and cultural influence. Their language, Akkadian, was the dominant language for centuries, even filtering all the way into the court of ancient Egypt. The Akkadians rose to absolutely phenomenal heights, and they changed the whole world around them. Around 2250 BCE, a king of Akkad named Narim Sin recorded the following text. Quote, At the time when the god Dagan decreed a favourable destiny for Narim Sin, King Narim Sin had his statues sculpted and dedicated to the god. Thus speaks the mighty Narim Sin, king of the four quarters of the earth. Quote, Dagan has given me Ebla. The god Nurgle opened up the path for Narim Sin the strong, and he gave to him the cities of Arman and Ebla. With the weapon of Dagan, who praises his kingdom, Narim Sin the mighty defeated Arman and Ebla, and from the banks of the Euphrates he subdued all the peoples whom the god had given him. They served him. End quote. Narim Sin claims to have defeated Ebla and other communities in conquest. He did this despite being hundreds of miles away in what is now southern Iraq. Was it idle boasting? Well, as that destruction layer in Ebla implies, no. Historians now suspect that Narim Sin, or one of his near contemporaries, was the king responsible for the savage destruction of Ebla. How it happened, or why? These are still unknown. What is clear is that a king of Akkad around 2250 BCE invaded central Syria, defeated the soldiers of Ebla, and then captured and burned the city. At the time, Ebla was strong enough that it didn't have fortified walls. So the collapse of the city was probably quite swift, a sudden onslaught and devastation. And so, from there, the city of Ebla fell from the best of times to the very worst. The city was put to the sword, to the torch, and it was never the same again. The Akkadian conquest was not simply an act of imperialist aggression. In fact, it was part of a larger process in the region, that might actually have some relevance for how we understand the Syrian conflict today. The fall of Ebla took place within a larger crisis that afflicted Syria and the Near East around 2300 to 2200 BCE. No one is exactly sure why, but many cities in the area at this time found themselves suffering from economic loss, invasion, and depopulation. Naturally, archaeologists are investigating, and some of the current theories are alarmingly relevant today. In 2015, researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, published a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Their study suggested, statistically, that some of the sparks of the modern Syrian war came out of a prolonged period of drought in the region. Drought killed livestock, reduced harvests, and drove up food prices. This caused shortages among the rural population. It led to malnutrition in their children, and it encouraged one and a half million people to leave the Syrian countryside, seeking better fortunes in the cities. Unfortunately, 
This rural exodus coincided with a flood of refugees fleeing the nearby war in Iraq, which was also suffering the effects of this drought. The problem became worse, and unrest grew. People's need turned to desperation, desperation turned to anger, and anger turned to political action. According to this hypothesis, these hardships and other factors may have helped spark the dissent that caused the war in Syria to begin. Well, around 2300 BCE, the Near East and Egypt saw a similar shift in the regional climate. Rainfall diminished in this period, and the deserts began to expand. Grasslands disappeared, wells dried up, and agriculture became less and less productive. The result for them was equally catastrophic as today. In Egypt, the royal household lost its influence, leading to the first intermediate period. In Syria, cities like Ebla suffered food shortages, economic hardship, and eventually the wars that brought kings like Narim Sin of Akkad to their doorstep. As different kingdoms experienced hardship in their own backyards, they began to search elsewhere for a solution. For some of them, the solution was an aggressive one, and so the Akkadians, perhaps suffering the same effects of the drought across the region, decided that the best way to increase their farmland production was through conquest. Now this is just one theory, and it's not a universal explanation for what happened to Ebla. But the story of Ebla's collapse is alarmingly relevant today. As the climate grew drier, food surpluses declined. This increased the pressure on local populations, and before too long, war was looming. Are we seeing similar situations today? Well, without getting into circular logic, I'll say quite possibly. Despite the brutality of the Akkadian conquest, the destruction of Ebla was not a total catastrophe. First of all, people did eventually return to the site, and within a few centuries, Ebla was thriving once again. Although it never regained its former wealth and glory, the city still managed to be a place of life and love for many generations to come. Secondly, the destruction of the city had an unintended benefit. When the city was burned, the royal archives, where they kept their clay tablets documenting receipts and accounts, were burned and then buried. The burning helped preserve the clay tablets by baking them as if they were in an oven, so it increased their durability. Then, when the buildings collapsed on top of them and buried them, they were protected from the elements for millennia. So the Akkadian destruction of Ebla had the completely unintended benefit of preserving one of the world's greatest written archives. Archaeologists working at Ebla have uncovered no fewer than 15,000 tablets and fragments of tablets at the ancient citadel. The vast majority of these rediscovered tablets comes from the palace which was destroyed in 2250 BCE by the Akkadians. So the fall of Ebla left some positives for the greater legacy of humanity. Obviously, I wish their story had ended differently, but we have to work with what we have. It would be nice if a thousand years from now, future historians are able to look back on the current Syrian war and say the same thing, but we'll never know.
So we have to do what we can now while we're able to do it. In episode 2 of Syrian Tales, we will visit the second golden age of ancient Syrian culture. Visiting the Syrian city called Mari, we will encounter a world full of vibrant trade, extensive communication, and all the intricacies of politics between ancient and great cities. If that's not enough, the next episode features the voice talents of some truly wonderful podcasters who have helped me bring the story to life. This episode will feature wonderful contributions by Drew Varenkamp of Wonders of the World, Kevin Stroud of The History of English, and Robin Pearson of The History of Byzantium. Join me now for Syrian Tales Episode 2. And again, thank you for helping the people of Syria. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History The French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.